Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello, and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me wonderfully is Dr. Holly Ordway. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. And just to give an introduction, Dr. Ordway is the Fellow of Faith and Culture for the Word on Fire Institute. As part of the Institute, she hosts a series on imaginative apologetics, which I've watched and is fantastic. And I believe you have a forthcoming series on creative writing and evangelization, which I'm very excited for. Dr. Ordway is also the visiting professor for Houston Baptist University, and she has a PhD in English from University of of Massachusetts Amherst, and she has written uh, and several books along with many great articles on the internet, which I'm sure you'll all be reading very shortly after this episode. But her most recent book uh, came out earlier this year and is titled Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. And of course, anything to do with Tolkien, I had to buy and read immediately and is fantastic. And so I'm delighted that she is joining us for this episode to discuss this great new book. So I guess maybe Maybe to start us off, you could tell us why you thought about writing this book at all. Well, this, this book really came out as a, as a question because 10 years ago, because this book has been in the process for, for 10 years, um, I started to ask myself the question, you know, I've been studying Tolkien for decades and, you know, did, doing work in The Lord of the Rings. Um, it's sort of time to wonder, where did The Lord of the Rings come from? Because I had assumed, as as far as I could tell, most people assume that his background was, you know, purely medieval. He was only interested or primarily interested in medieval um, literature and culture and that he rejected modernity. I just thought, well, that's how he is. But The Lord of the Rings is such a powerful book for the modern era. It speaks so powerfully to you know the themes and issues that are so relevant for the 20th century, the 21st century. And it just was a little puzzling to me. Like, how could this man who was, I thought, so oriented toward the past write a book that resonated so powerfully with the present, um, with modern issues. And then I also began wondering, what had he read of, well, first of a modern fantasy, because I had done my PhD dissertation on the history of the modern fantasy novel. So I knew that there was some interesting fantasy before Tolkien. And I knew that he had read at least a little bit of it, because he mentions it in the letters and on fairy stories. So I started to ask, I wonder how much he read of it. Now, I had assumed the answer was relatively little um, because his authorized biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, made the very forthright statement that Tolkien um, read very little modern fiction and took no serious notice of it. Boom. Okay. But I thought, well, I wonder what he did read. And those two questions together started me just looking at, well, let me see if I can find out with an open mind, what had he read? What did he think about it? And oh golly, I kept finding more things and more things, more titles and more titles. And my picture of him began to become more complex and more nuanced. And I realized he read a lot of modern literature. He took very serious notice of it. Carpenter was wrong. <laughs> Good heavens. And that, that discovery of what he had read and how it reshaped my view of him made my view of him more well-rounded, more complete, more complex, more more nuanced, frankly, more interesting, that became Tolkien's modern reading. I think that's so great. You spend a good chunk of time at the start of the book just delving into 
kind of what the caricature of Tolkien was, which was largely formed by Humphrey Carpenter's biography, and then dismantling that. And I think that's so important because I know as it when I encountered Tolkien, I was so in love with it and he became a hero and I wanted to emulate so much of what he stood for. And there was I, actually genuinely there was a part of me that was like, but I like all of these things in my in my modern life. I like TV that's coming out. I like knowing what's happening in the world. Like, is it is it a case of one or the other? And obviously, that's just like a very small personal experience. But it was really reassuring to find that he was more complex than that. And he had more nuanced views and that he was able to embrace all kinds of different art and culture. And also that even that impacts his writing. I know there's a quote from Lewis about nobody could influence Tolkien. And, you know, that's <laughs> so profoundly untrue, but that he was able to enjoy the world. And I think as particularly as Catholics, I think we're often tackling that question, which is how to live in the world and yet be a part of it. And I think we're missing a fantastic example for ourselves if we don't know about the Tolkien that was interested in science fiction and was interested in current events and whatnot. Um, so like, I don't know, maybe if you want to just talk about that idea of the caricature of Tolkien and why it's so one focused and not the full picture at all. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And indeed, that's one of the reasons why the book took 10 years to, to write, because I was about six years in that I had this epiphany of, this is really a different picture than I thought. Um, and then I started to ask, why was it that I had this picture in the first place? Because it's it's very much entrenched. Now, I do want to credit where it's due. There have been some Tolkien scholars who knew that this wasn't quite accurate. Um, and I, I've got their work in my bibliography. I make use of them. But they were few voices, far between, and and... And these things they were bringing up about, well, Tolkien did read this modern author or that modern author. It always got taken as an exception because we all knew, right, that he disliked the modern world and was oriented towards the past. And, you know, I say this with all fairness because I also held that view. I accepted this. You know, why shouldn't I, right? And it was only digging into the, the research, you know, the evidence that I realized that it, that it wasn't the case. So I think there's a, there's a couple of really interesting strands as to how this picture, you know, came about that's so so flat, so one-sided. Humphrey Carpenter did a lot of that in his biography and in his group biography, The Inklings. Um, and I go into that in some detail in in the book. And you know, again, I didn't set out, I didn't set out to disprove Carpenter. Um, I just discovered halfway through that he wasn't reliable in the way that we've all thought that he was reliable or that a lot of people thought he was reliable. It's quite interesting. Since um, Tolkien's Modern Reading has come out, I've gotten a lot of messages from scholars saying, I always had a feeling there was something that was missing or not quite right. And you finally shown me what it was, which is interesting. Um, but it's not just Carpenter. He, I think, sort of rigidified this image, but he wasn't the one who created the image. There's a lot of different factors that came into play. And one of them, interestingly, is that even in Tolkien's lifetime, people seem to want to put him in this box. Uh, there's one interview that particularly struck me where the interviewer was basically trying to feed Tolkien a question about like disregarding the modern world, about like not reading the news or anything like that. 
Um, and Tolkien corrects him and says, no, no, no. In fact, you know, I read the newspaper. In fact, I take three newspapers and I'm very interested in what's going on in, you know, the local, local area, national news, international news. He stresses that point to the interviewer who was trying to get to get, you know, get him to give this sort of stereotyped answer. And I, I think that there's long been, even from Tolkien's own day, a desire to kind of safely put him in a box because nostalgia is safe. Nostalgia doesn't challenge us. And that I think is the really important thing about recognizing this, this view of Tolkien, because I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with being primarily interested in medieval literature. Like if, if that's how Tolkien was, then great. That's how he was. No, no fault there. But I think he wasn't, though, and he was interested in more things. And he critiques modernity. That's the thing. He doesn't just blindly accept it. He has a lot of very critical things to say about it, about the abuse of technology, about totalitarianism, about industrialism. Um, he's, he's got views. Um, he's anti-apartheid. And I think that people don't really want to be challenged by these because if they accept that he was engaging with modernity in a serious way, then his critiques have got power. He's not just, you know, speaking out of nostalgia. So I think in a sense throughout, you know, the, all of his reception, including during his lifetime, people have been made uncomfortable by this critique and they've wanted to put him in that safe little box of the nostalgic Tweedy Oxford on so that they don't have to take into account that he's critiquing modernity, not from a nostalgic stuck in the past perspective, but from a profoundly knowledgeable, insightful, aware, discerning perspective, his critiques have got a lot more bite if we realize that. <laughs> Absolutely. As it, I, I watch very little live TV these days and I happened to watch a single program with my dad recently and it was, I think it was called The, the Good Old Days and it was about sort of the Victorian construction of the idyllic countryside. But they actually ended up, they went past the Victorian age and, and, and talked about the Shire and Tolkien. And, you know, they did a, a fair enough job of not just saying that he was being ridiculously romanticizing that the countryside is actually a hard place to live, especially in those eras of, of, of extreme poverty. But I did think it was really interesting. There is that just expectation of, oh, of course, when Tolkien wrote about the Shire, he was being sort of idealistic and nostalgic, like you said, and, and reaching for the past. And uh, that's not true or fair. And that I, I think one of the parts that I really kind of latched onto in your book was when you were saying about how he had cars and he did like driving. And I, I know a lot of people bring up this quote, and I believe it was in that TV show of saying like roads are destroying England. And again, that was, he, he, I think he even specifies, I have less of a problem with cars than I do with, with roads um, and the sort of like steamrolling of, of progress into every part of, of the world and, and not just kind of taking it slowly. And uh, I think there was one of my favorite quotes was he said something like, something that is good in, in two or three is usually bad in 5,000. <laughs> and anyone who's stuck in traffic on a rush hour will certainly know how that feels. But that sense that 
He also didn't idealize the past. He said that the medieval Oxford would have been full of noise and that the ancients felled a lot of trees for smelting and shipbuilding and that they weren't so like amazed and awed by every oak tree as I, as I feel like Tolkien was. <laughs> but that those things don't preclude and cultivating of a respect and a stewardship of the countryside and not submitting to an onward march of progress and technology simply because that's the way of the age or something like that. Exactly. And I think that this this sense of getting his context is important because, you know, in Oxford now there's the there's the green belt and we can look at the countryside and say, oh, how how lovely this is, how beautiful Oxford is. But Oxford came very close to having a major highway put straight through the center. It was it was staved off by the efforts of the townspeople, but it very nearly happened. And during Tolkien's lifetime, which was before the green belts happened, they just wiped out an entire historic neighborhood, a medieval, beautiful, you know, historic neighborhood to put in the ring road. And that destruction was right, was present to him. And and we can very easily look back and we don't we don't know what was was missing, right? We didn't live through you know that that felling of it, and we can sort of think that he's he's pining for this sort of idealized past. When no, he's seeing right before his eyes that people count you know city councils are making terrible choices, and we see this here today with you know protesters pointing out like the haphazard felling of trees to put in some road somewhere without any thought to what what that means like oh just you know cut them down whatever he's he's looking at it in terms of like what do we need to do is this really necessary is this really is this really good um and as he says in that that the the interview that he likes to drive cars and he enjoys going out in them but what the problem is is that the road builders just blast through willy-nilly and they destroy the very things that the cars are supposed to take you to the beautiful landscape that you're supposed to be able to drive to the road builders blast a, you know, a highway through it. Well, you've, you've kind of destroyed the very thing that you, that you were trying to, to get to. And so yeah. I think Tolkien's critique here is much more nuanced that he, he appreciates the value of things like modern transport, but realizes that the way that we implement it is quite varied, sometimes very well, sometimes catastrophically badly. Yeah, I'm really reminded I live relatively close to a building which was the inspiration for James Joyce's uh, story, The Dead. And it's quite famously at the moment being uh, it's gotten the OK to be turned into a hostel. And there's a lot of, you know, literary and cultural figures and, you know, ordinary people like me who are aghast by this. Like, I can assure you, every 50 meters, there's a new hotel or hostel <laughs> being put up. And it does feel like that real oxymoron thing where you're destroying a building to facilitate tourists by eliminating something that the tourists might actually come to see, <laughs> which it just makes so little long-term sense that you would not actually preserve the things that make Dublin, Dublin. And in the same way, I think that Tolkien feels that way as well. And I was delighted to read in your book that he really liked, uh, well, he, he was engaging with James Joyce and he found it interesting and found it linguistically interesting, which I think is really telling. And as a, as a huge T.S. Eliot fan, I was also <laughs> thrilled to hear him have some kind words to say about T.S. Eliot. Um, I know Lewis's opinion changed over time, but I think that quote that he has, which is like, I've never seen an evening that looked like a patient etherized to <laughs> 
upon the table has somewhat stuck with the sort of inkling view of T.S. Eliot. Well, you know, this, this takes us in a way to one of the reasons that Tolkien has been slightly misunderstood is, and I think, I mean, Lewis really did have a negative opinion of Eliot, um, but these kind of one-liners can get taken out of context. And especially, I think, Tolkien's, because Tolkien, I discovered, well, he's extremely English um, and he has very English habits of expression, which include being, on the one hand, sometimes very hyperbolic, um, exaggerating to the nth degree what he's saying for a fact. Um, on the other hand, being extraordinarily understated about things, especially things that are important to him. And I've been, you know, spending a lot of time in England for you know more than a decade now, um, and it sunk in gradually that. The English, for all they have outward appearances to Americans, are very different from Americans. Um, I'm a New Englander myself, so of, of all the areas in, in America, New England is the closest culturally. So I felt like I was even a little bit more ready to perceive this. But this, this very naturally English combination of two completely different things has made it, I think, extra puzzling for Americans in particular to figure out Tolkien, because on the one hand, he'll say things like, I detest Dante, he's a petty little man. And then he is a member of the Oxford Dante Society and presents <laughs> paper on Dante. And in the interview where he has, says that, backpedals to the authors and says, well, I, I didn't really mean that about Dante. I, I you know, wouldn't dream of comparing myself to him. So we have there a little glimpse of the way that, for once, he realized that his, his hyperbole in print would take on a, a sort of fixity of meaning that is not what he intended. If you think mm -hmm. about him hanging out with the Inklings, they they would have, and we know that they were very vigorous and very playful. And you can just imagine the exaggerated, you know, oh, T.S. Eliot's the worst, do kind of things flying around, you know, the, the burden baby. Mm -hmm. And what what did they think on a serious level about these authors? probably something a little bit more nuanced, which we may or may not be able to get to if we don't have you know, the, the evidence for it. But it's so easy and so tempting to just go for the thing that we hear that's so vigorous and so deliciously quotable um, and assume that that is the whole story when almost always it's not. And it contributes to this anti-modern um, false stereotype about Tolkien when, as you as you saw, he's interested in these authors, doesn't necessarily approve of everything they're doing, but he mm -hmm. takes it seriously. And I think that's the key. And I, I even wonder, does our sort of modern internet usage and social media usage of like, and you know, I do this for the podcast, but pulling out quotes and not reading the whole thing and just getting these snippets really affect how we interact with lots of authors like my friends know that I have a real pet peeve about how when they put Jane Austen on the 10 pound note which is obviously a great thing but they pulled out a quote for her and her quote was I do declare there is no joy in life like reading and if you've read Jane Austen you know that an antagonistic person is saying that completely superficially and not in at all seriously she's she's currently not reading and too busy talking about how much she likes reading rather than actually being interested in reading. I was saying that there's another quote in another book where someone says, I couldn't live without music. And I'm like, you might as well pull that quote out and say that that's what Jane Austen thinks. <laughs> like, it, it just is so frustrating to me that you would pull out that quote, which is from not only like within a book, it's not even from the narrator, it's from a character and say, well, this is 
Jane Austen's opinion on reading. <laughs> yeah, I remember when there was the uh, the um, the 200th anniversary. Uh, I was in Oxford at the time, and I wanted to get a commemorative mug. And all the commemorative mugs had quotes that were satiric ones from yeah. characters. I'm like, I no, I can't, I can't do this. It was, I, I literally, I could not find a mug with a saying on it that was actually apt. It was ridiculous. I know. And she has, she has loads of wonderful letters. So it's not even like you don't have material that you could pull from that are actually her quotes. And maybe because a bit like Tolkien, there's that English sensibility of over saying things or overstating it or understating it. Like you never quite get people's true meanings, even when they, they write it down. But there is a sense that you should maybe not pluck words out of like other characters' mouths and attribute them to the authors. What? Uh, <laughs> but I was wondering, like, I, I I went through the whole book and I was really fascinated by several parts that you you explored, but was there any writers or books or poems in particular that you were really pleasantly surprised to come across as an influence on him? Oh, um, that's, that's really a tough question because it... I think I was pleasantly surprised to see the range of his, of his interests. That was the thing that it, it came upon me very gradually, you know, as I found one author here and one author there. Um, so I think it was more the cumulative effect. I think if I were to say one thing that pleasantly surprised me, it would be his interest in science fiction because I've enjoyed science fiction myself ever since I was a girl. Um, and I honestly wouldn't have thought that Tolkien enjoyed science fiction um, but to find that you know, he names Isaac Asimov as a favorite author, um, he speaks very favorably and warmly of science fiction, has no problem with Lord of the Rings being compared to science fiction, that surprised me. Mm. Um, so that, that kind of delighted me in a way, um, that, that this was something that he just enjoyed. Um, and there's the famous story that you know he and C.S. Lewis had lunch at the Eastgate Hotel with Arthur C. Clarke and one of Clarke's friends. Um, and, and the story has been known for a while that, you know, they discussed interplanetary, you know, conquest and, uh, and a good time was had by all, but they didn't come to any agreements. Um, and I think now that I know what he read, I see that, I see that lunch in a different light because I see it as totally characteristic of Tolkien that he would enjoy sitting down for this lunch with the very much non-Christian Clark having a debate on these issues of science and science fiction that he was genuinely interested in and knowledgeable about. That's the thing I didn't know before. He wasn't just a passive tag along with his buddy C.S. Lewis. He would have been an active participant in this engaging, lively conversation. And I have no doubt that indeed a good time really was had by all. It's just a delightful, a delightful picture. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's one of those conversations you wish you could have had it had an ear in on, but sadly lost to the to the sands of time. Um, yeah, I was wondering then maybe, obviously, the book, it, it goes through the different works that you found that he's definitely read. I, I mentioned to you in my email to you that your appendices, like I saw the appendix of your book, and I immediately took a photo and sent it to my friend. And I was like, I've never been so excited. But you you list out all of the books that we know he referenced either and you lay it out whether it was in letters or in his own personal writing or in speeches or, or, or found in his library, so that we have a kind of catalogue of the books that at the very least he owned or that we know he read 
said. And so then in your book, you kind of like tease out potential ways that it influenced his writing. And I was kind of hoping to just dive into rather than maybe specifically looking at what exactly his modern reading was, but pulling out some of the themes that came out that have been influenced and maybe we have a better understanding of now knowing this. And so the first one that I really wanted to dive into, I just think it's such an interesting topic when it comes to Tolkien, is the theme of death and deathlessness and the desire for deathlessness. And in the book, you kind of pull it out in relation to J.M. Barry's Peter Pan and that you, you mentioned that Tolkien really liked J.M. Barry's work in many ways, but eventually came to reject this famous quote from Peter Pan, which is like, to die would be an awfully big adventure. And that there's a kind of cavalierness and a flippancy about death in there. And also just even the concept of Peter Pan being this, this deathless boy and that being kind of aspirational in a way that in some ways you can read parts of Lord of the Rings and even the Silmarillion as a as a deliberate rejection of that theme. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting theme. And this is something that I think knowing his reading helps us with. Because I mean, obviously, I make I make certain cases for influences that I think are reasonable. Um, and I draw the implications of where he where he himself notes an influence. But I think one of the most interesting things about knowing his reading is that we, we know he read Barry, we know he read Peter Pan and had thoughts about it. And we know that he dealt with this theme. And so we can look at the contrast and see, well, what did what did he do with it? And I think, again, context, context and chronology has often just been disregarded in looking at Tolkien as if he was eternally, you know, a 70 year old man. <laughs> forever um, as a certain kind of deathlessness, but not the kind that, that Tolkien would have would have wanted. Um, but he had a, a very long life. And I think the Peter Pan is particularly notable because he's he's famous. Carpenter quotes him in the biography from from his, his diary, saying he saw the play Peter Pan, um, and it profoundly affected him. And it's important to note that that is before the Great War. So this is him as a as quite a young man seeing it in that peak of Edwardian self cultural self confidence, where death is you know a, a, almost a Oh, it could happen somewhere, sometime. It's an awfully big adventure. Not long after, Tolkien himself is is fighting in the front lines in the Great War, and most of his his good friends are killed. He's seeing death all around him. He himself, um, you know, gets quite sick with trench fever. So after that, we see he's handling this theme of death differently, um, and I think it's quite notable that the one sort of Peter Pan-ish piece that he wrote, um, You and Me in the Cottage of Lost Play, uh, which is this very sugary, sentimental, <laughs> you know, like you can almost think, did he write this? Like, yes, he did before his Great War experiences. Um, and then he, and then as Christopher Tolkien notes, quite sort of dryly, this didn't make it into the mature legendarium. And I think we can see why, because this idea of, of like the happy little Peter Pan children Tolkien had been through an experience of modernity, of the trauma of modernity, that meant that he couldn't deal with the theme of death in that superficial Peter Panish kind of way. But, and here's the interesting thing, this desire, this Peter Pan, you know, what C.S. Lewis calls Peter Pantheism, this desire for a kind of superficial, artificial childhood 
it persists, you know, as a kind of nostalgic escapism from the reality of death. So Tolkien's engaging with that. And I think he does that in some really interesting ways in, especially in the Silmarillion, um, but even in the Lord of the Rings, sort of acknowledging the appeal of this avoidance of death, but showing that ultimately it's shallow and, and, you know, and destructive. Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you pull up on that. It, within this theme, you have both an influence kind of negatively from more modern literature, supplemented by a modern experience, and then supplemented again later, perhaps by World War Two and, and uh, seeing that experience from the kind of sidelines again, like you, you get it kind of doubly in that way. But I've always been really fascinated by Tolkien's experience in World War One. John Garth's book on this is amazing. And I think so much of Tolkien's um, writing is really that his experience there is really key. And I'm, I, as much as we're talking about uh, modern stuff, I am a medievalist. Like my love of Tolkien inspired me to go do a master's in Viking and Anglo-Saxon studies. Like I absolutely love it and can see his influences there scattered just all over. There's no denying that. But I think that in particular, World War One is maybe secondary to that in, in the way that he understands it. I think it's really telling that the other really amazing product of Peter Jackson's filmmaking was his recent documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old. And mm. his fascination with World War One. I, I know he also was part of a artistic exhibition with his colleagues in Weta Workshop to create these enormous statues of, of um, scenes from World War One in, in, I think it was Wellington. But I think to the extent that he understands the Lord of the Rings, I feel like his obsession with World War One really helps that. And so this theme of deathlessness and and the the scale that I think even after a year of pandemic, I feel like we still have no concept of the scale of death that happens in World War One and why that really permeates what he's writing. And I think it makes it all the more profound when you understand that he is exploring the idea that death is not only, a, he says, a divine punishment, but also a divine gift. And that's a, a kind of concept I think has become a bit more popularized now. I think Stephen Colbert referenced it in a very viral interview. But that idea that's in the Silmarillion of him saying that death is called the gift of Iluvatar, that God figure in the Silmarillion, that the race of men was created to be bestowed this specific gift, and that gift is death. And I think it's such a, it's so different to anything else I think I've ever read, especially in, in fiction, that you could take the time to really assess what it means to die, why it can be a good thing to die, and why it's also a bad thing to be flippant about death. Like it is both incredibly important and at the same time, not something that's just a vacuum of, of evil. Yeah, that complexity. Again, this is a sort of recurring theme with, with all of my, my work with this book. Like Tolkien's, if you just say he's more complex than we thought, we'll, we'll be saying true, true <laughs> things. But I think you're absolutely right about the the impact of the Great War. And and John Garth, I mean, in a way, John Garth's um, Tolkien, The Great War, was really pivotal to my work because I read that before I started working on, on Tolkien's Modern Reading and saw here he's he's fundamentally influenced by the most modern of traumas and that is another piece it, it kind of breaks up the puzzle breaks up this static image of him as stuck in the past um 
And I like, you know, I like what you said about the importance of, of valuing his medieval interest. You know, I, I started out being a medievalist. Um, that was what I went to graduate school to do and shifted um, partway through. But uh, the beauty of it is that this is a both and. It's a yes and. Nothing I have done is to undercut the absolute centrality, really, of his medieval interests. And I actually think that recognizing his modern interests makes his medieval involvement more meaningful and more important because it wasn't an escape. He wasn't running away from modernity. He was engaging with medieval literature and culture and language because it mattered, not because he was hiding from modernity. So this is, you know, it's, it's definitely this both and, and there's so many influences, um, you know, profound, deep influences on his writings from medieval literature, from the sagas. But we start to see, like with this theme of death, how does he handle it? How does he draw these different threads together? And so, you know, for instance, with with death, you know, we have plenty of death in the in the like the Norse sagas. You know, they're they're the body count is high, shall we say? Um, <laughs> but they're they're more individual. They're they're people fighting other people, making bad choices, suffering tragic you know losses. What we have in World War One is the global, the first global mechanized warfare where people are, where, where the soldiers were cut down in their thousands and their tens of thousands, facelessly by poison gas, by machine guns. That was new. That's a level of trauma that had never had never been experienced before, ever. That's different. Um, and that mechanization of, of wartime slaughter is very different from the kind of heroic, even foolish, even, even when it's foolish and wrongheaded, the kind of thing that you get in the sagas is, is, is individual, is personal. Um, it's a different kind of experience of death. And I think that the Tolkien is, is engaging with that, um, you know, trying to work through that in the Lord of the Rings and in the Silmarillion. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to me, some of the most interesting ways he explores it in The Lord of the Rings are actually through his female characters. And he gets a short shrift for his female characters. I was saying this to a friend recently that whatever you say about the, the quantity, I still think the quality of female characters in Lord of the Rings is almost unparalleled. That to me, Eowyn is one of the most um, engaging and intriguing characters that I have have read full stop what woman or not woman but that I think he is really deftly exploring what it is to look for death and he makes this incredible point which is that even when we do bad things like like we were saying the the punishment of death like as Christians we do understand death as a punishment but that even those punishments can be worked to gifts. So you have this character of Eowyn who goes, um, the quote is, it was the face of one without hope who goes in search of death. And I think Tolkien personally would really strongly say that that is not the correct approach for us, that we shouldn't go out in search of death. Even the the cavalier, it, it would be an awfully big adventure, whether it's out of despair or out of flippancy, that neither of those things actually um, speak to the the truth of what we should be doing with our lives, which is 
sacrificing them, but not in on our terms. I think that's what's so interesting about Eowyn is that everything, she wants it on her terms that, you know, when she's healed in the houses of healing, she wakes up and says like, it is not always good to be healed. I went in search of battle and even bitter pain and I have been healed and I wouldn't choose this. Or yeah, she says, I looked for death in battle, but I have not died and the battle goes on. And she's just heartbroken at this idea that she wasn't able to choose a glorious death. And, you know, Tolkien is so careful about that. And in some ways you feel like maybe she's vindicated because she does destroy the Witch King of Angmar. She does destroy the head of the Nazgul's. And so something good came out of it. So was it the right thing for her to do? And again, I think Tolkien brings in this really Catholic understanding, which says, even the things that we do badly God has the ability to work to good. And that doesn't mean we should do them badly, but that these punishments can become gifts in that way. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because I, I looked, I refreshed my memory about that particular quote about the uh, the punishments. Um, interesting that he notes, a divine punishment is also a divine gift if accepted because its object is ultimate blessing. And so I think that's a, a key part there is that, there's that if accepted, that is very Catholic sensibility that, you know, God doesn't just punish us arbitrarily. He doesn't make us suffer arbitrarily. He allows us to suffer. He does punish us um, when we deserve it. But we have to accept that. But it's in the accepting that it becomes a blessing. You know, we have to say yes to divine grace um, because if we say no, then we say no. And I think one, I agree, Eowyn is an amazing character. I just love her. And she's such a nuanced character. I mean, he gives her a tremendous inner life. I mean, in a way, I think, it, arguably, she's the, the character with the richest inner life of any in The Lord of the Rings. And the people who say that there's no character development in Lord of the Rings just don't know how to read. I mean, they're, they're projecting <laughs> onto it what they think it is rather than mm-hmm. seeing what it is. Because she has this... this really complex inner life and inner conflicts. And the thing is that her her love of Aragorn is not an evil because he is a good man. He is worthy of her love. And it, he isn't in, and indeed it, there's nothing even sinful about it because he's not married. She's not she's not longing for a married man at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not the good that she is called to. Uh, and so she has to learn to let it go. Now that you know, again, a profoundly Catholic sensibility. And it's hard, it's painful, right? To say, okay, this is a good thing, but not the good thing for me. And I think that Tolkien has a great deal of sympathy for her hopeless quest for death. And again, you know, he was in the trenches. He he got the news of his friends dying. Did did he himself grapple with this? Well, we don't we don't know, but it would be, I think not unsurprising if if he if he had in fact grappled with this this sense of hopelessness i mean you know the records of the the various records of the great war soldiers they, they all had to face this and so he has this real sympathy i think for eowyn's pain for her real pain it's it's not superficial he doesn't he doesn't make light of it and he allows her to feel it all the way through even as you say, even all the way to the point of not wanting to be healed, that is profound psychological and spiritual insight that sometimes mm-hmm. we don't want to be healed. And I think it's interesting to c- contrast that to Denethor, 
um, who has in some ways a similar situation because he's seeing, you know, the, he's seeing a loss of hope. He's seeing his city attacked by Sauron. He's, he's lost one son. He's, he's estranged from his other by his own fault. Um, and he chooses the path of despair. And again, I think we can see Tolkien gives us enough of Denethor to have us see that he's a great man. He could have chosen a different path. He almost mm. chooses a different path. And yet he doesn't. He chooses the path of despair. And, and it's clear that this is the wrong path. So it's really interesting the way that Tolkien gives us these two different characters who are both seeking death for bad reasons, and one of whom accepts healing and the other rejects it. And mm. it's a very interesting, very interesting set of characters. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting that he almost groups together two things that feel very opposite, both the kind of reckless throwing away of your life and the the grasping desire to keep hold of your life. So with the Numenorians and that kind of legendarium that falls behind the Lord of the Rings, that these, this great nation of people who tried to take the deathless lands by force and were, were cursed for that. But that both of those things are about control and both of those things are about having it on your own terms. And that's why I think it's so interesting when you come to the appendices of Lord of the Rings and you get the full story of Arwen and Aragorn, they also within themselves have this struggle that Arwen has to accept mortality, something that is not innate to her, but also that Aragorn he, it says that he can choose the hour of his death. And in some ways, I think in modern days, that might actually kind of ring some alarm bells of like euthanasia or things like that. But what Tolkien's actually getting at there is that before him, before Aragorn, the problem was keeping control and staying alive as long as possible so that you can have the throne for as long as possible. And he says that, you know, it is his time and that his son is ready and that it is now you know, to let go and not to control to the end and say that this is the end and I can I can let all of this go and 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 let my son carry it on and I won't have that control. And and then, you know, Arwen has to have her own release of that. And she she does find it really painful. I think it's interesting. And I do like the book, but I know Tom Shippey in his book Road to Middle Earth says that Arwen despairs. And I disagree with that. She I don't think Tolkien would have anyone who he considers good actually succumb to despair because to him that is the greatest evil that she she maybe goes in sorrow and spends days in sorrow and lets herself die alone but that's that's a question of her letting go i love that line it's so powerful when when he says but arwen became as a mortal woman and yet it was not her lot to die until all that she had gained was lost so she not only has to let aragorn go but anything that she had gained through this choice, she had to lose before she could die. That's such an incredibly hard road to walk, to ask anyone to walk. Yeah, and I think I, I agree with you about that. I don't I don't think she despairs. Um and I think this is part of our modern confusion. Um we we don't understand suffering. Um we tend to think of suffering as a as a unmitigated evil. But Tolkien would have said no. And the in the Catholic perspective, the full bodied Catholic perspective says no. Suffering is unpleasant. We should we should never seek it. But if it comes to us, as you know, as in his letter, it's a divine punishment that if we accept it becomes a gift. Well, in a sense, we can see Arwen is is kind of 
drinking the full cup, you know, is she's it's very bitter more than she would have wanted, but that's that actually is the essence of accepting the divine gift. You can't say, "No, that's enough suffering for me. That's that's all I want." Because then it comes back to what you said, this idea of control. The whole point is to say, not my will, but yours be done. And if that means the stripping away of everything that she loves, everything that she has held on to, of course she's going to sorrow. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> but yeah. that doesn't mean she despairs. Um, actually, it, you can in a way see that she doesn't despair because she doesn't try to hold on to it. Denethor mm-hmm. does, see, he tries to hold on to it. When he thinks that all is lost, he tries to hold on to it by the very act of choosing to throw it away. Uh, mm-hmm. He's trying to say, it's my life, is mine to throw away. That's mm-hmm. how I'm going to exert my control. Um, and that is a very different thing, first from you know Aragorn saying, okay, now is the time I'm going to let go. Um, mm-hmm. And then Arwen is saying you know, I accept this, I'm going to let the things be taken from me. And because of those choices, we see that it they, they do well, they, they make the right choices. I think he even says a line, something like, in sorrow, we must go, but not despair. And that to despair would be to lose at last to Sauron, that even after all of this time that you could still lose that battle, if, if you give, give in to despair at the end. And I think it also really highlights, you know, it's such a famous line from Lord of the Rings, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And there's a book called The Gospel According to Tolkien by Ralph Wood. And he has a section where he talks about how if, and, and so much of the Silmarillion is about this, if you have unending time that you can either give in to pride or despair, that if you feel like you've got... And, endless time. You have all the time in the world to do whatever you think you ought to do. And so there's always tomorrow. You can always put it off the good until tomorrow. And if you also feel like you're never going to stop failing, that you're never actually going to achieve what you ought to do, then then you, you despair in that way. So that actually putting us within time, and in that way, it's the gift, because then we get to look forward to being joined with God at the end of our lives. In the Silmarillion, it even has that line about saying that, and it's St. Augustine, like our, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, Lord, that like that Iluvatar created man not to feel at rest in the world, whereas the elves feel completely at rest in the world. This is their domain, that it is not their destiny to leave this world. So they find complete satisfaction in it to a certain extent, especially in the land of Valinor. But that that for man, it is never to feel at home in his own home because there's something greater to yearn for. Yeah, I, I, it's, just, it's fascinating what he does with this. And I think the Silmarillion is a, is a very complex, a whole legendarian, enormously complex. Um, and I think it's interesting to note that Tolkien's very clear that his elves have conditional immortality. You know, they are, they are immortal within the circles of the world. And I think with a materialist perspective, it's easy for some readers to assume that that just means immortality, you know, mm. point blank. But it's not, um, because this the circles of this world will come to an end. And then what happens to them beyond that, they, they don't know. They're, they're bound to the circles of this world while this world exists. 
So their their immortality is not the immortality of Iluvatar or of the Valar. He, it's 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 a created conditional, well, basically a very extended longevity, and it gives us an opportunity to see. Well, yeah, as you say, different attitudes playing out. What what do you do if you have all this time? And one of the things that we see, you know, there's this I've seen this joke before that sub, an alternate title for the Silmarillion: Elves behaving badly. <laughs> um and because they so many of them do i mean it's i think a bit of a shock in a way if you come to the Silmarillion, you've heard about the Silmarils, and the Silmarillion is all that that whole part of the story is all about jealousy and possessiveness and vindictiveness and and people making oaths they shouldn't make and holding to them when they shouldn't hold to them and like no stop it stop it and so the, the functioning of pride and the fact that they have long lives t- to do it in doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, it makes things worse because they have, you know, centuries to nurse their, their vindictiveness and their feuds. And so it again brings us back to that theme of death. And we say, you know, maybe not such a bad thing that we haven't got millennia to, you know, make a mess of things. Cause the elves are not perfect, and Tolkien never presents them that way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's part of the sort of oversimplification of his work to think that he makes the elves as some sort of superhuman. Or, I mean, he in some ways is. He even says this. He's he's using them to embody certain human traits, but even then, he's not doing it in a sort of idealized way <clears throat> because we see. Certain of the characters, like Galadriel, who is a figure of great wisdom and power, she's you know, wholly positive in Lord of the Rings. But we see in the similar in that she has a history of rebellion. You know, she actually mm-hmm. is tempted by the ring. She re- she refuses to take it in the end. But we do see that she might have taken it and might have become this dark figure. All will love me and despair. Mm-hmm. So again, even in this powerful elf queen he he doesn't give us a perspective that's you know whitewashed that's all like prettied up yeah galadriel would 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 be a terrible person <laughs> if she went wrong yeah uh, a, a bit like the cars you know that anything anything is bad in its misuse and we can apply that to technology or people and i think it's interesting i'm actually writing an article at the moment which is about old english elegies and it's honestly been a little bit tricky to keep my preparation for this podcast and the, my preparation for the article is like separate in my head i keep like mixing up oh i pulled this quote for this and this quote for this but i was thinking how so much of what's in those old english elegies is this idea of transience and that everything will pass and most importantly that in this old English conception that it's not that the things will just die, but that the things that we love are actually lent to us. The word is lana, meaning lent, as a, and, and that's used in opposition to etcha, which is eternal. And so it's not it's not a question of whether we get to hold on to our, the things that we like. It's that, no, they were loaned to us for, from the beginning. And so in what way do we get to keep on to them? Because they were never ours to begin with. Our life, our wealth, our friends, our family, all of these things are are loaned. And I think that conception of it is really integral to to Tolkien's understanding. And I was actually going to move on just briefly to another point that you pull out, which is obviously we can get a sense of Tolkien's love of 
Germanic mythology and English mythology from from looking at his medieval work. But you pointed out how we can see some more of it and maybe a fuller understanding from his his love of the stories of William Morris. Yeah, well, that's that's in another enormously large area to discuss. But Morris is, again, interesting because Tolkien's relationship with Morris changes over time. Um, you know, Morris, Morris was very much a, a, trying to popularize a kind of medievalism. Um, he was not himself a scholar, amateur scholar, you know, self-taught and did translations um, and wrote these basically medieval pastiches written in a a sort of fake archaic style. They're, they're attempting to sound medieval. Um, they're, they're very distinctive prose, at least. Um, and uh, he was a ba- major figure in his time. He's not read now, and honestly, for good reason. He's, he's read by some, <laughs> some folks, but he's, he's not, it, it, it hasn't lasted. And that is actually an interesting point of contrast because Morris was hugely popular, and he mm. is right, rightfully not now. Um, Tolkien grows in popularity and, and rightfully. Um, but Tolkien encountered Morris's stories very early on. Um, certainly, he knew the story of Sigurd from in the Red Fairy book um, as a little boy. He certainly read Morris's work as undergraduate um, at Exeter, and he's inspired by it. He's, he deliberately writes The Fall of Gondolin in Morris's style, and very much so. I mean, looking at the language that he uses, um, you can see that he's he's basically importing Morris's pseudo archaic diction into his prose is a very obvious and distinct influence. But then as Tolkien matures, and incidentally, as he himself immerses himself in medieval literature and language, the linguistic influence of Morris decreases. And Tolkien's prose actually becomes less overtly archaic. And that's a point that not many, some scholars, but not many have picked up on, that he does use certain archaisms, but relatively few. And if you look at his early work, he he definitely moves out of a Mauritian period into one that is much more of modern prose style. Mm. But so it's interesting to see the way that he engages with, with Morris and Morris's medievalism. So... It's a complex influence. Yeah, and I think what really struck me was that you pulled out, in particular, there was one book, The House of the Wolfings, where Morris expresses this quite negative view of the Roman Empire. So he writes this book from the Germanic tribal perspective, and that uh, there's not that many examples of books where it takes the the Romans as the evil ones. <laughs> it's almost like taken as given for so much of like Western conception. And I think what's interesting is both Morris and Tolkien reject that. And I think it's particularly interesting for Tolkien because again, I feel like so much of our expectation is is given that because we are Roman Catholic, that that means a particular affiliation with the Roman Empire and not just with the the Christian experience in Rome, that that those things are separate. I know you note that he goes to Rome and with his daughter and really enjoys it and takes a lot of pleasure out of it. It doesn't mean that he's sort of like anti-Italian, but that he saw the Roman Empire as this invading force, this destructive force, and that it is represents a lot of the sort of decadent 
civilization, which again comes back to what we were saying about um, the his experience of World War One, and I think in particular World War One has that sense of like it gets started because various royal families can't stand down from a particular offence, so they have to save face in some way, and so you have this enormous slaughter and the basis of some essentially bureaucracy that feels inevitable when you're reading about it it's like how do you get out of this because the the rules of society dictate that once you say this i can't back down and and the immense destruction that comes from that and i think tolkien actually really relates that to the roman empire and uh, it's interesting then we in the book you point out kind of parallels both to numenor which is maybe more a, a, a sympathetic or a, a race of people that tolkien in some ways looks up to but also to orcs that like orcs are almost like the 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 trudging centurion like soldiers with all of their mechanisms and all of their order and that actually while sometimes we kind of portray orcs as a rabble and maybe the ones that are in Moria are sort of more like scraggly rabbles of, of brigands. But actually when you're in Mordor, there's these descriptions of legions of legions and this order and this mechanization that we come back to is is so central to what he he understands as actually bad and not good. Yes, yeah, that was actually one of the kind of surprises of my research because I was puzzled by his statement that he that the Lord of the Rings owes a great debt to William Morris. Okay, um, the House mm-hmm. of the Wolves and the Roots of the Mountains. Okay, and he but he also specifically notes his Huns and his Romans in those books. I mean, he he calls that he mentions that specifically, and I just thought to myself, no no scholar that I have found actually attended to that bit of it D- different parts of it they've attended to not as much as i thought maybe could have been done but but his huns and his romans i thought tolkien mentions this and i puzzled over this for a very long time years actually um what could he possibly have meant by this and i began to see in his letters these these pers- persistent references that are negative about the roman empire and then discovering in other various references that he geographically envisioned Mordor as basically in the Mediterranean. And that reconceptualized my view because when he talks about the South of Middle Earth, like Mordor being in the South, he's not connecting that with the global South. It's basically Southern England. And all of a sudden I thought, well then the dark skinned orcs dark in, in what way you know, and then realizing that there are these connections, many, many connections between the descriptions of the orcs and the descriptions of Morris's Romans. I mean, it's it really struck me that they you could you could take the you could take the Romans, the bad guy Romans, out of the House of the Wolfings and drop them down into Mordor, and they would fit right in. They have the same attitudes, they look the same, like all many of the same adjectives come out. I thought, golly, these are these are orcs. And then you know the the technology, the iron, um, the the straight roads. These are very Roman. And I I feel too that you know since Tolkien encountered Morris very very early, he's a very early influence. House of the Wolf, he's a very early influence. Um, and the orcs come in relatively early in certain ways um, as you know goblins and orcs. And and the goblins too, they come partly from um, George MacDonald. And the orcs, Tolkien never really satisfactorily came to grips with them. I mean, even into the 1960s, he was still trying to figure out what are the orcs? You know, they're not quite 
they're not quite sentient beings in the same way that the elves and and humans are. They're they're controlled in a certain way by Sauron. What does that mean for them? He never fully came to grips with it. And I tend to think that this is possibly due in part by the fact that they had a primarily literary inspiration as opposed mm. to being part of his theological and linguistic inspiration. I think the orcs came from Morris and maybe a bit of McDonald, whereas the elves came a different route. And I, I think that helps to understand some of the sort of theological tensions with the orcs that, that he was well aware of and mm. ne- ne- never quite resolved. But it does, again, it, it, I think it helps us to look at the orcs um, in a different way and to see them you know, not not so much in in terms of theology or, or, or racial issues, but in terms of of totalitarianism, which was a huge issue for Tolkien, as well we can understand, having fought in the First World War and lived through the Second World War with sons fighting in the Second World War, he was very anti-totalitarian, um, very suspicious of empire, very suspicious of big government for very good reasons, and. I think if we see the his attitude towards that, we can see the orcs as kind of expressing some of him working out these issues of of you know the the evils of totalitarian impulses um, and the and the rigidity of that and the and the um, belligerence of that because that's what we have with Rome and even with Numenor you know as you say the Numenorians in some ways are very sympathetic. But then these are the same Numenorians who become obsessed with death and control and, and go and invade Valinor. Um, you know, the Numenorians come to a very bad end. Uh, and the Numenorians are the most Roman of his sort of creations in the legendarium. And it's interesting that my, my, my last point here is it's interesting that you noted the elegies because I see a very similar attitude there. Like you, you know, in the medieval elegy, something like the ruin, um, you know, looking looking at civilization in a very different way than we tend to now. These the medieval elegists well aware that, you know, hundreds of years before civilization was at a higher peak. And then it fell and here we are meditating on the ruins. Um, and Tolkien had seen kind of that peak of Edwardian cultural self-confidence come to bits in the Great War gradually kind of come together again, come to bits in the you know ghastly horrors of the Second World War. Um, so I think Tolkien is in a way connecting that medieval sensibility, that awareness that civilization is not a constant state of progress. Civilizations come and they go. Rome came and went as an empire. Numenor came and went as an empire. Our culture perhaps will do the same. And I think that's Tolkien drawing on both the medieval and the very, very modern to kind of have that, you know, elegiac sensibility in, in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I think just to, to close out on my points, I was thinking that that line that I feel like resonates particularly with Christians. I've had it come up several times recently with talking with Catholic and Christian friends about the long defeat. And I think there's a sense of that 
we actually might be better off really embracing that. And that there is a church triumphant, but that that's not us. <laughs> um, that that sense of the long defeat. And I know in the book, you pull out a quote from Tolkien where he's talking about what's going to happen at the end of World War II and how it's going to be the big folk that come down and, and like mandate their solution and their what they want. And that he describes the Tolkien's that they belong to the ever defeated, never altogether subdued side. That that sense of being okay with being on the losing side. And like you said, like in the ruin, you have the old English speaker looking up at the work of the, the giants, which is the, the Roman ruins that they're seeing and they're building in wood and they've no idea how these like two civilizations could ever like connect in some way. Yeah, that he, I think he really identifies a sort of fatalism, which I think in some Germanic myth goes too far into nihilism and that he tempers with Christianity. Although I think that it's also tempered in in Old English elegies, like we were saying, the Old English elegies do say that we should find consolation in God the Father and in our Christian faith rather than in the things of the world. So it's not just in Tolkien, it is in those medieval texts themselves in, in certain places, but that, yeah, that, that sense of reckless willingness to be defeated by not compromising our, our morals and our principles and our faith and being okay to be on the losing side. And I think that's what he finds so enchanting about the Germanic sensibility as opposed to the domineering, successful, triumphant Roman civilization that gets what it wants, no matter what the cost. Uh, and I think that's why he really champions that more Germanic sensibility. And I think that's part of what makes him a, a genuine challenge for the modern reader, because that's a hard message, especially if you're not Christian. And I think it's, but it's such an important message that, you know, we, we can't just try to hold on and, and always be in the winning side um, because ultimately we're all going to die and we've got to, we've got to reckon with that. So we, we all individually, personally are fighting the long defeat because we are going to die. <laughs> How do we deal with that? What do we make of that? Yeah. I think Tolkien's Catholic sensibility helps him to sort of put that in context and understand that. Uh, and, and especially I think his context as a Catholic in England, where especially, you know, in his lifetime, very much marginalized, not by any means, you know, not the established church, not the triumphant, you know, voice of the establishment, but a marginalized, generally disliked, disadvantaged group. And he's still saying, well, you know, okay, <laughs> I'm on the losing side, apparently, in terms of cultural and social power, definitely on the losing side, so be it. And I think we need to hear that, honestly. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I could keep talking all day, <laughs> but I, I won't keep you all day. Thanks so much for, for joining us for this discussion. I had a, a wonderful time. Oh, pleasure was mutual. <laughs> and I have the last question to ask you. What have you been enjoying at the moment? Oh, well, um, lot, lots of things. Um, but I've been enjoying actually rereading some books I discovered from actually from Tolkien, the uh, Swallows and Amazon series by Arthur mm -hmm. Ransom. These children's these children's novels. Um, I, I, I reread them since discovering them in Tolkien, and now I'm re rereading them and uh, finding them just really delightful and refreshing and fun. Which I think we need that too. We've had all this talk of death and despair, um, and that's we have to face that. But I, mm -hmm. it's also good to have refreshment, um, and that's uh, something I've been enjoying right now. Uh, that sounds excellent because my my recommendation is a little bit more on the the dour side. I I've been enjoying the new Bo Burnham 
comedy special on Netflix called Inside. Um, if you don't know Bo Burnham, like prepare for it to be quite bleak. Uh, and I think in particular, this special that he's released is maybe bordering on a side of lacking in redemption. But I think he has such a powerful thing to say about how we're interacting with particularly social media and being online and having spent lockdown being forced to only be online and not in a normal social world and how strange that is and how that that kind of online culture has transformed us all into a kind of movie star at the center of our own world that we project out into the world and how like damaging in some ways that is to our, our social uh, construct. It doesn't sound very funny. It isn't like a, a laugh a minute type of comedy, but it's sort of, it, he, he kind of interweaves comedy and, and this sort of cultural commentary with, with a lot of music. And it's really fascinating. It's something I will probably dive into again later. So that's what I'm recommending. Um, if you If you have the stuff, for it. <laughs> but other than that, I think it's just time to say you can follow Holly on Twitter. I think it's at Holly Ordway and on Word on Fire. She does a lot of amazing work there. Is there anything else that you'd like to call out that you want to promote? Well, I would just note that they can go to my website, which is hollyordway.com. And that's where um, it where I have other links, um, they can find out more about my work there. Fantastic. And yeah, and lots of great things coming. Like I said, I'm really looking forward to more series on the Institute. So uh, lots of great things to come. And of course, I would encourage everyone to pick up Tolkien's Modern Reading. I really enjoyed it. I'd really recommend it. And there is a Word on Fire EU shop for any of my European listeners. I was thrilled when when that was set up. I think with Brexit, we're more and more conscious of how much it costs to import stuff. All of my usual... UK shops are now largely out of bounds. Yes, I'm very pleased because that's that's a, a Word on Fire has done a great job as as a publisher. So yes, if your readers go to wordonfire.org/tolkien, that's the mm. page about the book, which actually also has um, some videos, interviews, has my Tolkien and Oxford series of, of on-site location videos about different places that were important in Tolkien. But there's a set of links. So if you click on you know the Europe store or the um, Australia New Zealand store or the Canada store. Um, it takes mm-hmm. you to the store for your region. Um, so if you if they click on the Europe store, you you get shipping that's quite a lot more reasonable to your location. Um, so that's yeah. um, that's if you order through the publisher. So I recommend that wordonfire.org/tolkien. There was one time I tried to order a magazine and I selected Ireland and the shipping came up at ninety dollars. <laughs> I was like, I just don't know anyone in the world who would like select that option and say, let's go. Anyway, thank you so much. And as always, you can follow the podcast on Instagram. It's uh, at Risking Enchantment Podcast. And you can sign up for our newsletter on rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back again shortly with another episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.